Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Creating Structure podcast. I'm your host, John Wheaton. My privilege, pleasure to have Mr. Scott Maloney, uh, founder, leader, K2M Design. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here today. It is really spectacular to have you. Um, you're a busy guy, you have a lot of interests, and I can't wait to ask questions and, and see where we go with this. Um, we we try, we, we don't try. On the Creating Structure podcast, we represent a number of areas in the building, construction, design, business community, and we don't get to hear from the architect, the architectural leader, the architect's perspective it, enough. We've had some really exemplary architects on here and so I'm looking forward to hearing because um, sometimes I say to my engineers, I don't have to remind them anymore, but I say, hey, if architects didn't create some of the crazy stuff we see, we wouldn't have a job. Everything would be 10 foot floors and 90 degree corners. How fun would that be? We'd, everything right. would be out of a kit. Square boxes and all. Exactly. So <laughs> anyway, so Scott, uh, give us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, your background, what you do, et cetera. Certainly. So I'm one of those... Uh, a uh, gentleman that's, that's made his way from the uh, East Coast to the, the Midwest over my lifetime. So, uh, you know, I'm 49 years old, almost 49 years old. Oh, my goodness, almost 49 years old. Uh, born in Red Bank, New Jersey, um, you know, right close to where uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, lives and has uh, resided for the majority of his life. Uh, moved to Western New York, south of Buffalo. So just um, to escape a tiny bit of the snow when in my formidable years. And, you know, ever since attending Kent State University, um, I have been here in Northeast Ohio um, for the entire time. And so definitely, you certainly don't hear any sort of uh, New Jersey or Western New York accents from me, but I am very much a, a Midwest man. So my values, culture, uh, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, the formidable years of my adulthood really have been uh, shaped um, by the sort of the Midwest core values. Uh, education, as I said, I went to uh, Kent State University, uh, where I majored in architecture, completed the Bachelor of Architecture degree back in 1997. Um, and, you know, really, I think remember the coming to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, my very first time. And my, my, my boss at the time uh, met me um, at the office, and then took me immediately over to Hex. Um, in Ohio City, which is a really interesting story. And I just remember having a hamburger with him. He's like, you know, I just want to, you know, show you a little bit around Cleveland. And I fell in love with the place when I was a, uh, a senior, my, or my fourth year uh, in the School of Architecture. Now, it's funny because that same uh, boss became my first business partner, and I located our office uh, literally one block from Hex um, 14 <laughs> years ago. Love and, it. You know, it's really interesting how that that little tiny community of Ohio City really became um, a home and a place that we've been able to, uh, you know, really enjoy ourselves over, like I said, the last 14 years and has shaped, you know, our other eight or nine different locations of where we are and the types of places that we want to be in. So the company is um, K2M Design. We've been uh, in business since uh, 9101, so a near a little over 21 years, 21 and a half years at this point in time. Uh, I am sort of the founder and serve in the visionary role. So as we talk about a little bit later on about the entrepreneurial operating system, uh, that's my role, um, sort of the big picture idea, strategic relationships, um, 
you know, uh, vision, future of where the organization is going, uh, new product service offerings, things of that nature. Uh, and then, of course, all things business development and sales related is really what I do with the organization. I'm very blessed to have, uh, you know, 110 plus uh, co-workers on our side that really manage all of the day to day and make K2M um, truly uh, what it is today. It wouldn't be without them um, that we wouldn't be as uh, strong as we are and sort of as national of a scale as we are. Fantastic. I didn't know you were from Red Bank, New Jersey. That's cool. I actually have a client in uh, California. Livermore, California, um, the VP of operations there, Jeff Scalisi. He's from New Jersey, and uh, he looks forward to getting back there, tries to get back there once a year. Um, I just talked to him recently. He said he really enjoyed getting back to New Jersey, you know, from Northern California, see friends and family. Oh, yeah. So that's cool. Um, who was the boss, by the way? Who was the boss that took you to Hex? So it was Harry Kegler. Um, he is the K and K2M design. So he and I, I worked I remember together. Harry. Yeah. Yep. At a previous firm, uh, Voinovich Companies, and you know, about uh, five years or four and a half years into my uh, my stint with them, it really was the you know opportunity to start thinking outside of the box a little bit. And I'm an, a diehard entrepreneur. I'm probably more entrepreneur than I am architect um, in sort of how I think and how I act and behave. Um, you know, we can talk about why architecture in a moment, but the uh, um, I always knew I was going to be in business for myself. And so, you know, 26 years old, started thinking about what that was going to look like. And by 27, we had launched k 2 Design. Wow. Did you, did you wind up pursuing your, did you have to get an RA or did you go just purely on the business side of that? Right. So when we first started out, I did not have my architectural license. So Harry was the, um, the license holder for the firm. Um, and, you know, once probably within a year or so later, um, I, I accomplished that feat of, of getting the, uh, architectural registration here in Ohio. I've got a million questions I could ask. Um, I won't get to that many, <laughs> but yeah, we've already got a ton of content here. I, I like that, you know, you, you're more entrepreneurial than architecture, but architecture is, the business you're in. Um, let me hold that thought for a minute. Why did you choose architecture? All right. So, you know, this I, I've had this question asked to me um, several times over the years, and I don't know if I have a perfect pinpoint um, moment in time, but I always knew I was going to be an architect. I mean, you know, some kids were out there like, I'm going to be a fireman. I want to be a race car driver. Hell no. I want to be an architect. Why? Maybe it was one of my friends that were in Boy Scouts and like half the dads were architects and they all worked in the same firm together in Jamestown, New York. And it was like, hey, look at that guy. He's got a BMW and he's really cool dressed. And I'm like, I want to be an architect. That looks like a cool profession. The other way looking at it was my family was all attorneys. I was so different than the rest of them that you know it had to be left brain, right brain. And so I figured I would head in a different direction in architecture. It certainly seemed to be the the place for me. I always that loved is, the building and the tinkering and the putting things together, but I was never sort of that engineerial type, um, you know, that that you know liked some the confines of, of basic studies there, just really more uh, you know, amoebic in my <laughs> my work. I no, I get it. I mean, some I've had people share similar um, 
Yeah, on the show. I mean, you know, when I when I saw Mike Brady on the Brady Bunch, he was an architect. He had six yeah. kids and lived in California, and I thought that's a pretty cool job, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So now that that's great. Um, and having attorney, so you're you're at least somewhat right-brained in a left-brained family that are a bunch of analytical lawyers oh, yeah. thinking in a linear manner, right? Sorry, lawyers. I love you all too. You're good. You're great. I know there's artistic right. lawyers out there too. Yeah. <laughs> Still looking for them. Let me know who you are. Just that's kidding. Fun. No, I get you. So um, that's why part of why you chose architecture. Why did you choose Kent State? Uh, my mother. Um, so we were looking at colleges. I had uh, an opportunity to attend um, Syracuse University. I could have attended any of the university schools within the state of New York, even SWAM for some of them. But um, uh, there was a woman that literally, I think, sat next to my mother um, and her daughter, uh, Michelle, went to Kent State and she was a fifth year architecture student. And so she said, you know what, I think we should go down and look at Kent State. Um, and went down there and, and that was the end of the decision-making process. It was like, I think this is a really good place for you to go. And I said, it's three States away. It's far enough. I don't have to come home every weekend. And you know what, this looks like the place for me and Kent state I went. So thanks mom. That, that's a great story. You know, for people that don't know, um, and I know there are a lot of Kent state architects nationally, certainly regionally and locally, but you know, the university of Akron is about 20 minutes from Kent state. And it is as strong in engineering as yep. Kent State is in architecture. Kent State is as strong in architecture as UA is in engineering. It's like two bookends, you know. And awesome. and shout out to Kent State. What a what a fabulous architecture school. I mean, there are so many good working architects that have come out of Kent State. Absolutely, hundred percent. I've been very fortunate. Um, uh, under the last few deans to be a part of the uh, um, sort of alumni advisory group. Um, with many people that are probably listen to this podcast as well. And so they, you know, it, what the, what they have done, um, you know, since moving from Taylor Hall to the new building, the types of programming, the expansion of what they offer, you know, really how they've evolved um, technology wise is, is absolutely just shocking um, and awesome. So, that's, yep. That's good. I, I did get asked by Christopher Toddy. He asked me if I wanted to come yeah. present on curtain wall to the, fifth year students. And I said, you know, just not going to be able to fulfill that. So I asked Michael Kohler, our director of oper operations in our building envelope engineering. And he went, he said he had a grand time. He said the students were prepared. They asked a lot of questions and we've hired some Kent state grads who wanted to go in a slightly different direction than traditional architecture. And they were productive from week one doing curtain wall drawings and stuff. Now they had to teach themselves AutoCAD because they came out of there just knowing how to do Rhino and that was yep. it unless they self-taught. Yep. Absolutely. So good. Um, okay. So you talked to us a little bit about why you chose architecture. I love that. Um, and I, I was curious, you, you touched on this a little bit. You always knew you wanted to be an architect. Did you always knew, did you always know that you wanted to be a business owner? Did you always know that you had the entrepreneurial itch or did you discover that? later okay so um always knew 
And, you know, I've, I've talked about my why with uh, many people in our organization over the years and even with uh, close friends. But one of the things is I'm a hustler, right? I always was a hustler. So I was the kid who put the lemonade stand inside the, you know, in the middle of the intersection. So I got all four, um, you know, directions of the cars paying my uh, uh, tariff in order to be able to cross to the other side of the street, which is a 10 cent cup of lemonade, right? <laughs> You know, I'd go to the baseball games and, you know, I, in, in New York, they actually uh, gave you five cents a can. And when you were eight years old, five cents a can got you five pieces of uh, candy um, at Peterson's Market. And so you pick up 10 cans, man, you got a whole pocket full of candy for you and your buddies. And, you know, it was just that. It was that that hustle, that that drive that, you know, I did newspapers. I shoveled anybody over 40 years old, their sidewalks. And then in the summertime, I mowed their lawns and it was always that hustle and bustle. Um, you know, I had people working with me by the time I was 16 years old. And so it was, it was just there. Um, I don't know where it comes from. Um, personally, uh, within my family, there's not a lot of, um, there aren't any entrepreneurs per se. Uh, but it was just, boy, it was there. Um, and it wasn't, you know, deep down under the surface, it was right there at the very top. And it was just kind of who I was. Um, and so, you know, when I got out of school, you know, it was really that opportunity to be able to um, start to learn about business. And, you know, candidly, I saw things that I didn't like. Um, and then I saw things that I thought were fantastic. And I said, you know what, I'm going to create a different type of business and a different type of um, firm um, that, you know, this certainly at the time, this area or this side of the country had never seen. And that's really what we started out to do. And I think we've been able to accomplish that over time. Okay, so let's follow that track for a minute. Um, <clears throat> are there, do you feel um, like you can, like, do you remember or are you comfortable like sharing what are some of the things you saw that you didn't like and what are some of the things you saw that you really liked? Right, so <laughs> probably almost two ways that I thought um, I saw some challenges in relationships, right? That I that I really didn't like, um, and for the people that I worked with um, uh, originally, um, I had a great affinity for um, Paul Voinovich. That's um, Vocon's um, owner's uh, dad. Yeah. Uh, so similar aged um, to Paul uh, Michael, um, his son, and but but he treated me extremely kind. Um, almost as if, you know, like here's Scott, take any opportunity that you can possibly get. Um, the more you want, the longer the rope gets, you know, if you get underwater, you know, raise your hand, um, we'll try and pull you up. If not, we'll keep you there and make you learn. And then we'll pull you up and, you know, wipe you off and get you going on the way. And so sort of that, um, that approach from a a one-on-one -on -one perspective to me, I thought was absolutely fantastic um that they gave me as much as much rope as i as i could take and whether that was 70 hours a week um it didn't matter because i was thrilled i couldn't believe somebody was paying me to do what i loved right <laughs> i mean it was I literally i was giggling there with my little digitizing tablet and my autocad 10 i'm like somebody's paying me to draw um you know i do this for free 20 hours a day um actually i pay for it for 20 hours a day back in school yeah. um but the relationship, so that that kind of um, relationship, I thought was really good. Um, the relationship that um, 
you know, sort of was out there on the political side of things. Um, I didn't really care for. I'm a very apolitical type of person, um, just in general. And, um, you know, I saw what politics did. And, you know, you get the good and the, the bad side of things. And it just was something that I, I said to myself, you know, this is, our firm is not going to get involved in this, despite the fact that we do some very um, highly publicized or politicized um, type of work. Um, we, we are just not involved in the politics um, that surround that type of work. It's a really kind of a, a different mission for us to be able to focus on. Uh, and then, you know, I was very fortunate um I considered myself in those early years being raised by a tribe. Uh, there was a great group of guys um, and girls that were there that taught me so much, right? You know, for any of you out there listening, if you are um, a young design professional, whether you're an engineer, an architect, an interior designer, be a sponge and get around as many people as you possibly can with a little bit of gray hair on their head and, um, you know, absorb all of the information you possibly can. So I had people who were 80 years old teaching me, you know, really traditional detailing techniques. Right. And, you know, these are the guys um, that would take a quarter and go, there's too much space on this paper because you've got a place to be able to put that quarter. So you can put a detail there. I got that to everybody, you know, going, that's the world's silliest door header detail. Come on and drag me over to where, where the construction site. Go. This is how a door header is actually built. You know, this is how you draw stuff. And constantly we're doing that. Um, they were teaching me planning. They were teaching me design. They were teaching me, you know, philosophies. They were teaching me, you know, good um, professional techniques that, you know, that I always thought were important. One of them, um, you know, Terry Mass, I remember telling me I was all upset about something. And he says, he goes, Scott, this is not personal, right? This is not an attack on you as an individual. He goes, you got to remember to keep that separate sort of from, you know, your personal, your uh, professional life. So you may have screwed something up terribly wrong, but it's not an attack on you, right? It's just, you need to make sure you make that improvement, remember it down the line. And, you know, those types of little things um, have gone a long ways in my life. And I remember those, those folks that we all sat here on at <laughs> on prospect avenue and they just they shared openly um the engineers did the architects did the construction managers did i still talk to several of them to this day and you know it was those are the formidable years that gave me that launching pad i can for sure feel that, i can feel that energy actually it really it really makes me smile it's it sounds a bit like you know seth godin's idea behind a tribe of mentors you know absolutely like, what a what a testimony to paul to the you know, Voinovich group into the local construction community. I love that. I love the story of here's, come here, son. Here's how a header is actually <laughs> built. You yeah. know what? Yeah. <laughs> That's important. I, I was telling, I was telling uh, one of my adult sons the other day, I'm like, you know what? Everything is important. It may not feel like that right now. How you make your bed is important. How you detail that door header is important. Now you may not want to detail that door header the rest of your life, but how you detail it, the form in which you communicate it, it's important. It matters, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. A, that is a great story. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for the shout out to young professionals, you know, be a sponge reminds me that, you know, of that question we ask ourselves here at Wheaton Sprague, um, whose responsibility is training 
it, it's both the trainer and the trainee, right? The mentor and the mentee. You, you got to want it, but you got to be willing to give it away too. It, it's two sides of the same coin. It's not just the company's responsible to give me a training plan. Come to me. It's like, no, we want to find teachable people, but then we have to be accountable to give them the right instruction. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at, at K2M, we have one of our core values is, is learn and lead. And that that really comes into exactly what you said. And I got that core value from those very early days and the men and women that I was able to work with because, you know, as, as they knew stuff, they were really sort of sharing that that information um, openly. So we've done that throughout the history of our company in various different types of programs. We've invited other architects, engineers, designers, like, hey, we just learned this amazing thing. Let's uh, let's share it with the world. And uh, it, it it's extremely important. You know, it's our, I think it's our duty as architects and engineers. Um, it's how we learned. It's how everybody in the future is going to continue to learn. And it's also our path to immortality. Uh. Oh, well said. Well said. It is our duty and it is a path to immortality in some right. way, shape or form. So somebody will so, remember that one story that, you know, Andy Baumannis, thanks for the header detail, man. There you go. Immortal. <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. So you said, I decided, and I'm paraphrasing, I saw things I liked and things I didn't like. We know you're an architect now. You've been schooled and mentored. You're gaining knowledge. You said, I saw things I liked and I didn't like. I decided I was going to start a firm that wasn't the same, a firm that hadn't been seen yet around here. I think that's what you said, something like that. Right. What what was that formation? Why K2M Design? And what were those tenants on which you started the firm? Right. So, you know, it's sort of cliche these days um, because so many people talk about it, but um, probably a couple of different tenants. All right. And so one of them was about building relationships based on trust and results. And so that's sort of the founding mission of the company. Uh, we had it before we had a company name, you know, brilliant two architects come up with their first initials of their last name, um, <laughs> you know, and then call it design. But the, you know, building relationships based on trust and results. And it really was about that, that we knew that the more relationships we could build, um, you know, the better our opportunities are going to be. And the only way we were going to do that is if we were delivering the results and the customers were trusting us based upon the things that we were saying to them. And so we started out um, 9101, um, you know, by 912, we were using our cell phones to call the office phones to see if they still work. <laughs> Everything pretty much went dead silent on there. But, you know, we said, okay, fine. All right, this is what we're going to have to do. And we really started talking to the people uh, that gave us a, our initial start. And, you know, we started doing good work for them. We were converting um, apartments to condominiums uh, in the warehouse district, which then led to, you know, uh, working on fitness centers and then doing restaurants and then, you know, you know, backyard um, barbecue decks. I mean, it didn't matter in those early days we did everything, but it was because, um, you know, I did good work for John and John called Jim and said, use Scott and, and Harry to do your, your next project. Yeah. And, you know, it, that once that momentum starts and once you, you are consistent in how you deliver that type of stuff, um, we really were able to take off and we didn't take off 
like a rocket ship. I mean, we took off very methodically um, because we didn't want to have that high and low. And you can find firms in Cleveland's history that have gone through that, you know, hundred million dollars one year, zero the next. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's, it's epic and across <laughs> our country included, but the, you know, we looked at it from the perspective of, you know, the relationships being a core part. And then we started to analyze um, geography and the type of business that occurred. And so when you look at the marketplace and how the markets move, um, everything is like a giant sine curve. Okay. And so um, as, um, you know, as, you know, hotels might be at the top of the, of the, of the sine curve and then you might have hospitality, industrial, multifamily, hotels, you know, and then everything kind of moves around the sine curve. And so there's, um, there's always the, you know, the, the hot product of the day. Six months later, it might be the next product that's, um, you know, kind of working its way up the hill. And so we wanted to have ourselves diversified in four different buckets um, within the private space. And then our fifth bucket was always going to be the, the um, uh, public market because we knew anytime that everything goes flat, that the public market is always going to come through and sort of bail out um, all of us in that private industry that, you know, was sort of feeding off of that. Uh, perfect example was exactly what happened in 2008 and virtually what happened um, during uh, uh, in 2020, um, early 21 as well. And so um, very, very fortunate for us uh, to be able to have that mindset. And then we looked at the geography and said, okay, Cleveland, Ohio in, you know, 2001 wasn't the booming mecca that it is today, right? Um, but it had absolutely amazing people. And interestingly enough, um, even in the first several years, it had one of the highest absorption rate of architects and engineers in all of the country. Um, I think in 06, it was, you know, we had like one of the smallest unemployment rates of all architects and engineers in the US. So I said, you know what, look, let's find some places that are really challenging to work in. Um, that are extremely busy, hard places to find people. We might get one or two there and then we will put them, you know, we'll use the Cleveland uh, drafting center, design center, whatever you want to call it, um, and be the place where all the production occurs. And we made a killing. Um, that is really the, the, the initial catalyst for, for serious growth for us was go down to Florida you know, say we're going to do something, deliver on it, maybe even be ahead of schedule. And we were just beating everybody around us. And that really was what those sort of few things um, business-wise um, was really quite different about how we were practicing because we weren't just sitting here trying to work in our local backyard or, you know, within the state or contiguous states. And the last thing I would say um, is a culture focus. Uh, I have been a student of culture um, I remember people like, uh, you know, Simon Sinek uh, before they were famous and they were coming to Cleveland and speaking to uh, the entrepreneurs organization and lots of people around culture, culture, culture in the early 2000s. Um, I couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, I just I thought there was such a better way to be able to work with people, um, empower them, uh, you know, motivate them, you know, as a uh, Kristen. Uh, my first CXO office said, hire thoroughbreds and let them run. That's why you're doing it. You know, you're not sitting there trying to keep them in a corral, right? And so we really have had that mentality over the entire lifetime. And it just, you know, others have, you know, followed what we've done and we share it openly with what, you know, how we look at people, 
you know, the whole 360 degree process of what it's like to be a K2Mer. And, you know, such a, a cool thing that we've been able to create over the last 21 years. That's a lot. Um, so <laughs> for that one question, what's that? I said for that one question, it was the longest answer on recorded podcast history. No, it, no actually it's not. <laughs> it just, I always wind up with many, many questions. Um, so you have nine locations. Uh, let me try to understand the, like the example of the Florida location were you saying that find places that are hard to work and we can use the Cleveland area as a feeder for additional personnel? And you said you were kind of crushing it. Was it more of a, a design center because people you could find people there that couldn't find work elsewhere? Or was it a whole separate like local office doing its own work? Um, let me see if I understand it. So our Florida Keys operation, um, we were oh, predominantly working. Yep. We're in uh, Key West Marathon and Key Largo. And so... Back in 2004, um, we worked on Key West um, on the island itself and very, very, very infrequently um, left uh, Key West in general. And so I said to uh, Mike Ingram, who was my uh, my second business partner, I said, you know what? I said, if you're going to stay in Key West, great. I'm going to take the other 100 miles, you know, not necessarily exactly 100 miles, but, you know, the rest of Monroe County and really see if we can generate some business opportunities because it was very heavily tourism, very heavily government um shaped and you know we had some pretty decent hospitality experience building um thanks to some of the work that we were doing with uh, the boykin lodging company and the reit there uh, that was actually based out of cleveland um, but also with the government work and the history and background that we had and so there wasn't a lot of architects there at the time that you know that had any sort of capacity other than you know one or two people and so i ran up and down monroe county you know every every third week and you know, within we were an eight hundred thousand dollar firm, you know, in June, and we were a four million dollar company by December. I mean, it just took them by storm, and it, we were just we just looked and acted differently. Granted, I didn't have as much of a tan as everybody else, but um, you know, they knew I was coming from Florida, but I still had the Key West uh, team to be able to support the work, or coming from Ohio, but the Key West team to support the work, and we did that progressively. We did that in uh, the Carolinas. We did that in the mid-Atlantic, Washington, D.C. area, and it, it worked really well for us. Uh, um, so did you pick Key West or did Key West pick you? Like, did the clients take you there or did you say, let's go as far from Cleveland as we can and then work backwards? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think the smartest decision in my history of decisions was go to Key West. Um, it is an extraordinarily challenging place to work. Um, but the, my first business partner and my second business partner went back to college. So they were college roommates, fraternity brothers. One was married to the other sister. They were lifelong friends. They are still friends to this very day, spend time together. And there was an opportunity that we had for us to be able to provide that back of house work to give them a hand and work on this very large, probably $40 million in the day, 2003 timeframe money um, project that uh, um, really brought us down there. And I just saw the opportunity and we, we took advantage of it as a team. That's great. So you have nine locations. So you have some locations in Florida, North Carolina, DC, Ohio, anything out West or further Midwest? So uh, Indianapolis and uh, Rogers, Arkansas, which is uh, Bentonville area, Northwest Arkansas. Got you. And Arkansas, yep. 
that area is, I mean, Mark's week may be listening at some point. There's a lot more going on than people give it credit. There's, there's a lot going on down there. Uh, there's a two and a half billion dollar headquarters that's happening uh, literally about a mile away from our office. So that, that feeds a lot of what's going on in Northwest Arkansas. But yes, it's a very active um, community. There's a, three very strong families there that are uh, um, ensuring it's, it's a lifetime success. So I do want to ask another question about culture before we move past this current part of the discussion, because I am keenly interested in culture. There's been a lot of culture changes through COVID and such. Um, yes. Um, how do you treat culture? What, what, what do you do to create as much as you're at liberty to talk about, I mean, what's the overriding kind of core core values that create the culture that is unique, that has 110 people, 115 people, that is, um, yeah, that you talked about 360 degrees. Like, what do you do? Uh, the answer is nothing. Um, so I would say initially within the organization that culture revolved around Scott Maloney, right? Um, but I think one of the most important things to recognize is um, culture is everybody's responsibility. Um, and I think that's, that's probably the most important thing that I can say um, relative to culture, that it is everybody's responsibility. It's not your boss's responsibility to make your workplace a happy place or however you want it to be, miserable for all that matters. Um, but it really is culture is everybody's responsibility. And we spend so much time um, bringing people into the organization that we, we talk more about the fit, um, of a person than we do what they're capable of doing. Okay. And so maybe when you're an intern and you bring your portfolio and we take a look at some of the pictures and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, we know you're going to learn pretty much everything <laughs> on a go forward basis from the people that you're going to be surrounded by and not necessarily from the professors that you had. Um, you're also going to be influenced by all those people that are surrounding you. And so, you know, we look for certain types of people. Our offices all have a little bit different um, culture to them, mm. but it's kind of how they are, how they like to function and the type of people that are in that space. You know, I mean, folks from, you could just think about it this way. Folks from New York city are very different than people from Northwest Arkansas. Okay. And yeah. so goes everything throughout the entire country. Uh, you know, Key West is different than Cleveland, which is different than Charlotte, which is different than DC. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just how it goes. And so, you know, you have a little bit of flexibility within the culture, um, but the people own it and you hire based upon fit. So there's a lot of stuff that comes into it. We talk about the core values. We talk about the vision, the mission, um, the type of people we, um, every single person that even applies into K2M has a personality profile done on it before we even meet uh, because we want to make sure that that profile fits what we're actually looking for in the organization. We've done this hundreds of times um, over the years and, you know, are very quickly able to, um, you know, acknowledge when people are not good fits. So our hiring process is a big part of that. But once you're on board, you know, be good um, is a very strong um, culture core value of ours. It's really how we want you um, to behave as a K2Mer and sort of that um, moral compass and conscious that you have, um, you know, yeah, I mean, 
I guess that's probably the best way to put it, moral compass and, and how we want you to, you know, act as a K2Mer because there's a certain type of um, attitude that we have, you know, towards each other and with each other. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and even as our firm's culture is changing, it, it, is it true that as a K2Mer, you would know pretty much what to expect from another K2Mer? You would pretty much know where your values align and how that person would operate. Uh, you should understand what unites you under um, how you're defined as a K2Mer, right? So like I said, mission, vision, values, certainly being, you know, some of the initial things, but also, you know, the intrinsic responsibility you have and whether you're an architect, a designer, an engineer, a facility, assessor, you know, a specialty uh, specialist, whatever, you know, planner, administrative person, you know, there's a certain, you know, um, uh, you know, I won't say requirement, but I would say that there's a certain expectation yeah. um, of you, you know, you're not throwing, you know, we have Ron Kaminsky, um, shout out to Culture Shock. So if anybody has not worked with him, um, you know, that's looking about culture, Ron was a, a major influencer in my life. Um, in terms of culture, uh, and helped me put me back on the path when I got it wrong. Um, so culture is great because culture evolves all the time, right? And so sometimes it evolved, but it went the wrong way. And then I lost my, you know, we lost our way. And Ron was always great to be able to help, uh, you know, kind of pull us back into uh, uh, what we were, you know, originally set out doing, goes, you know, and be able to see through that. But one of the things that he did very long time ago, um, was he built a little graphic for me. It was called above the line and below the line. And it was certain types of behaviors and attitudes um, that above the line, we really wanted to make sure that we instilled um, within K2Mers. And then, you know, things that were below the line that we really didn't want um, to be part of our vocabulary. So take, for instance, accountability. We wanted accountability to be above the line because we want, you know, look, you say you're going to do it. We expect you to actually do it. You know, the other thing would be, um, you know, below the line, throw you under the bus. Well, you know, Jimmy... He screwed it up for everybody. So, you know, nobody got their job done. Well, we don't do that at all. Um, and I think that's that's critically important, uh, you know, for how we sort of initially shape that, um, that kind of what it's like to be a K2Mer. And we have books on it. We have videos on it. We have testimonials on it. And as part of the onboarding process, um, every single person sees that. That's fantastic. Um for the personality profile, do you use a Colby? Do you use a disc profile? Do you use Myers-Briggs? Like, what do you, what do you use? So we, we've used various kinds. Um, let me see if I can find one. So we are still using um, the self-management groups um, test, but it's like a disc profile. Um, you know, it gives you, you can, you can, analyze it based upon the different job roles that you're doing now it's not going to be like engineer one versus engineer two it's going to be more like is that person responsible for sales for leadership or for you know doing um and so we've done that we've done colby when we bring in leaders and we want to um sort of when we really have to look at personalities um and alignment so for instance um you know if me as the owner i'm hiring um a ceo um, or a COO um, of, of our organization, we would use the Colby and both of us take it um, so that we could see where the, the, 
the matches are and where the misses are and if it's even possible to overcome them because that's those are sort of really p- important close relationships um, that have to occur so Colby's great for that yeah thanks for that so before we yeah. move on I want to ask you some questions about entrepreneurial operating system and such but before we move on to that um, what just briefly what areas of practice then does k2m um, have you have you obviously have architecture interior design do you have engineering I mean what different practice segments or practice areas do you have within the firm certainly so when you think about k2m design we're sort of in 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 three major categories we have our design categories oh architecture interior design structure mechanical electrical plumbing engineering so all the the major disciplines um, within that side we don't do civil work um, so that's very much localized where we are working across the nation or outside of the country um our next group would be um facility engineering side that would be more towards um compliance work so large organizations that have um compliance requirements um are uh, major customers of ours and so if there's a hey i need to make sure um you know, all of our roofs are within 10 years old or younger, you know, we go out and do assessments of them. And then if they aren't, we tell them how to fix them and all the different building systems that come along with that. Um, But very uh, compliance centric work. And then lastly, um, specialty consulting services. Um, And that's sort of the things that are sort of um, heavily um, influenced by the design side, but learned and specialized in over time. So some of my planning background would fall into there doing needs assessments, facility condition assessments, um, ADA assessments, post-occupancy evaluations, commissioning. And so looking at sort of the after effects of what we design and we build in our in our space, right? Energy auditing, uh, sort of just energy work in general, but then highly um, specialized engineering work. So that's great. To that's know. how that's how we're functioning today. Yeah, that's that's a lot of different platforms. There's a lot of balance there, a lot of challenges there, I'm sure. But that's really good. Um, do you guys work in offices um, exclusively, or do you work? Um, do you have any remote workers? Hybrid? Like, what's your, how's your organization set up since uh, either before or since COVID? Yeah, so from the very beginning, uh, one of the reasons why people join us is because we're flexible in how we work. Okay. Uh, so fortunately for us, as long as you have an internet signal, you are a capable person um, that is able to accomplish their job task because we are a fully cloud-based company. We did that um, four years ago. So thankfully, COVID was a 20-minute exercise. Pick up your thin client, grab a monitor, and head home. See you in two years. Who knew? Um, the But... I would say overall within our organization, there's probably 30% um, of all employees are remote um, and we're hired as remote people. It's, I think, why we were been able to hire so many people over the last couple of years alone. Um, and so there's a certain type of or certain years of experience that remote employee uh, or remote working works fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's certain type that's not. So if you are a, a young professional, you need to be in the office absorbing everything you possibly can. You know, if you're a 20 year person, you got, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're in a, an office or, you know, working from your home, as long as you're able to communicate and collaborate through technology, then it's perfectly fine. 
So 30% of the company is remote, 70% of the companies is in office um, five days a week. Great. That's really good to hear. Thank you for that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so a number of professional services firms have gone to what's called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And uh, wait, even when you and I were scheduling this interview, it, at least at the time, you're like, hey, can we push this by 15 minutes? I have a leadership team meeting on Wednesdays that's that's non-negotiable. And as soon as you said that, I said, are you an EOS guy? And you're like, absolutely, because right. we all know, and anybody listening this EOS or hybrid EOS, there's a vocabulary, right? Traction, accountability, leadership team, L10 meeting, um, to-dos, all those things. Um, and so I know we're talking... And, and I think this is interesting in this podcast. We're talking more about the business of work. Um, you know, for you, architecture is the form, but it sounds like you're a business guy who would thrive and be successful in any context, but but you love the building and architecture side. So what, what made you decide to go to EOS and how has EOS helped you over, I think you said, about 10 years to to grow your organization and be successful. Right. So, um, you know, I learned about EOS um, through um, Entrepreneurs Organization. Gina Wickman, who was the creator of EOS, uh, was a member out of Detroit and had basically written that book, um, his first book, um, you know, documenting how he was managing his company and how he was starting to see some other organizations um, be managed themselves. And so it was a new, uh, a new way of thinking about, you know, the basic operations of a small business. So, you know, a little bit less complicated, I guess, than Gazelles maybe, even though it's a great program. Um, and there's others that are out there as well. But um, it seemed really simple. And so, Again, Ron Kaminsky of Culture Shock was one of the very early adopters, uh, implementers, excuse me, um, for EOS, um, certainly in this area, but uh, nationally before it really kind of shot off with massive um, growth that they experienced um, in the mid 2010s. Um, so I had read the book. Um, I had seen Gino speak um, in the past, and it was really something I was quite interested in. Um, you know, it was a time in my professional life where anything shiny that went past me that looked good enough, I would grab a hold of for at least three weeks and ride that wave until the next shiny thing passed me, um, <laughs> you know, and causing absolute chaos within our organization. And I remember sitting down with my team, the leaders at the time. So I've got this great new idea. And then the moan happens like, Oh, another one, Scott. And I said, I want you to participate in this 90 uh, minute uh, intro and see if this sounds like something that we really should get ourselves into. And after that 90 minutes, it was, um, it was, it, everybody realized how important it was to put the structure um, around to this growing organization. We were coming out of the downturn and we were really starting to get some momentum behind us. And they made me promise as I sat on my hands and probably was tied to a chair um, to not make any changes for two years um, while we implemented EOS. And that's what we did. We made sure we got it right. Um, we spent a lot of time and a lot of energy, you know, putting it through the organization. And best, uh, one of the probably top three decisions we've ever made at K2M Design. 
How big were you when you implemented EOS? Um, 40. Okay. But at that time, so remember us talking about, you know, how many different seats we sit in? Um, you know, I was anything from visionary to the janitor yeah. um, and, and everywhere in between. And so, you know, when you create this vortex and this giant funnel, um, you know, it, it, it just wasn't fun for folks. And so, you know, really being able to start looking at it, start to be more data driven and sort of instead of gut driven, you know, to be a little bit more organized, systematized, it really started making a massive difference for us and how we were able to grow. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. To your point, um, the shiny object thing, I think, you know, when I was introduced to the entrepreneurial operating system almost 24 months ago now, my personal coach, Chuck Misha, he said, hey, I think this book, Rocket Fuel, is something yep. you and your partner ought to read. And yep. he said, he said um, this may have some value to you. And then um, we read it. We took the test. We talked. And we were kind of fairly classic visionary integrator according to those standards. But I liked your comment in that if people that haven't implemented, like we were, we were bigger um, in 2014, 15 than we are now. And we were in that 35 to 40 range. Um, and we were using E-Myth principles. And hey, E-Myth oh, yeah. is great. Michael Gerber, yep. E-Myth revisited. It was great. But we couldn't get past that spot and a lot of it yep. had to do with this vortex and i and the vortex was me and the top value probably of eos is it protects the organization from the visionary entrepreneur who always wants to change <laughs> exactly. stuff of course it does that's the best part about it they just don't tell you i'm like you mean i have to get my partner now to approve new wacky ideas before i actually say hey i just sold a job with this specialty structure, we've never done it before, but hey, Tom, why don't you go ahead and just do this? Let I'll yeah. review it. I'll stamp it, you know, and then like, what are, what are you doing? You know, and you don't realize the drag it creates on the organization, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. It, it so, also, uh, as, the, as the visionary, it slows down the, uh, the number of ridiculous ideas you bring or that make it into the organization, which is great. I mean, that's absolutely a great value of the integrators to, to be that buffer. Yeah. So, I mean, those who know EOS will understand what we're saying. Those who don't are like, yep. what are these two guys talking about? I guess um, it's good to hear more people utilizing it in professional services and architecture and engineering services. I know a number of them, uh, one actually direct company that does similar things to us, not exactly, but similar in the delegated design space and other architects and engineers um, with really great results. I like the path it picks. Um, so that's good. I'm glad that you've ex uh, experienced that success. And so will you guys, will, will you continue to use EOS in the imminent future? Is it still working for you as an organization? Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, it is embedded into the soul of who we are. I mean, for 10 years, we've been, we've been using it now. So, you know, starting out with traction, like you mentioned, rocket fuel, how to be a great boss, you know, the EOS life cycle. Um, we've made a little bit of edits to the, um, sort of metric data stuff that we follow and the process, the agenda items in our level 10s. Um, but that's just learned over, you know, doing it for so long. Yeah. Um, I like that. The I, I keep reminding our 
myself and our leadership team and others, I keep, you know, we'll ask you a question, well, should this be an EOS topic? And I say, listen, remember, we don't serve EOS, EOS serves us. We right. don't work for the platform, the platform works for us. So for instance, there was a ton of dynamics in the business last year for us, and we really were struggling with the 90-day cycle. And we made the decision at the end of July with our implementer, we're going to a 30-day EOS cycle. We're just going 30 days. And so it was 30-day rocks, 30-day everything, in addition to weekly scorecards. And man, it was exhausting, but it made it a huge difference. Like It was like a no-huddle offense right. and, uh, on the football field. Like we've got 15 play sets. We're going to, we're not getting a huddle. We're just going to go, 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 go. And right. it really, really worked well. So I like the flexibility there. You know, like you talked about, make a few changes here and there. Um, I would like to of ask you about, I would like to ask you about scorecarding. Um, that was KPIs and scorecarding was a very difficult area for me to understand and get my hands around, but that's one area we were, we have really benefited from, do you guys have in your EOS, do you have scorecards that you report on a regular basis by department, by area? Uh, everything. So without a doubt, I mean, it's, it's, I would say one of the, the best things, um, my partner's name is uh, Steve Grazley. He is the, uh, what would be considered the integrator um, of the greater uh, uh, K2M organization. Uh, him and our um, support team, especially on, um, um, you know, on the project side, on the metric side, they have made us extremely data driven. Um, I mean, this would never come from an um, from a uh, whatever brained architect I might be. Maybe it's like center brains, I'm a little mushy in the middle. But um, <laughs> he, he is an engineer, but he is a you know corporate America, so hardcore business. You know the the early school, you know Jack Welch days, GE. I mean, just hard knocks business. And he's like, we need to start measuring some of these things. And we've been refining these metrics over the years. And we look at you know sales, revenue. Um, we look out seven months of that. We wait proposals, 90%, 70%, 50%, you know, so we can start to see what's happening out there. You know, how much yeah. money has been invoiced by week, you know, what's expecting in terms of AR, in terms of, you know, expenses that are going out, utilization yep. of people, profit. I mean, everything is metric in our organization. It doesn't sound sexy, um, but it's no. awesome because there's no, I mean, you know, it depends on what one wants to do, right? If you want to be a 10 or 12 or 16 or 18 or 20 person organization. Um, you don't need all this. No, you don't need all that. If if no. you want to grow or have an eye towards growth, you've got to have it. You have to have some form of it. And I actually, I just, I just actually blogged about probably the least um, interesting topic of design constraints, but it, it kind of revolves around KPIs as well and scorecards. I, I, I just published a blog called, um, I didn't call it the least popular design constraints this time, but it's about budget and schedule and how budget and schedule are design constraints. You'll often hear, well, the design's done when it's done. I'm not done with it. It's not good enough yet. It's like, no, that's not actually the way it works. The design's done when the scope is fulfilled and the schedule is met and it's on or under budget. And you've got to start that way upstream. Otherwise, you're going to crash right into the wall, right? And well, you won't make any money on the project. You'll end up spending your own to finish it. 
Exactly. And then there's no growth and there's no anything. There's no reinvestment to all the people that are counting on you. I like what Dan Sullivan says in strategic coach in terms of counting on you. You know, if you, if you envision a future bigger than your present and you can create a tangible way to walk to that horizon while measuring backwards, the gap in the gain, like mm-hmm. if you can create a compelling enough future, people will, people will hitch their wagon to that. People will jump in the boat and go, sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. But if oh, yeah. you don't, and I've certainly made all the mistakes, you know, where people just got tired of it or tired of me or tired of whatever. And they couldn't see like, this isn't interesting anymore. So anyway, I like the guardrails that EOS provides. Yep. That's great. That's good to know. So we are at 56 minutes. Um, so we'll want to start wrapping up here. Um, do you, uh, let's talk about on the personal side. Um, so outside of the professional, so Scott is a human, um, Ooh. Do you have anything going deep? Yeah. So like you do, you work a lot. I'm sure um, you're an entrepreneur. Or it, it's in your DNA. Anything you do for hobbies, any, anything you do to help stay grounded, any routines or mindsets or practices or um, anything on that side that, that you do or think or like to continue to work on. Certainly. So one of my one of my biggest hobbies um, is traveling, and most people know that I um, travel for work quite extensively. Um, and I think I'm now considered in the in the category of leisure. Um, so where I don't have a lot of responsibility, and I can travel pretty much how often as I want. Um, but I take my business time, and then I turn it into leisure time as well. And so I love exploring new places. Um, you know, during COVID, one of my most fortunate things was I think I went to Mexico 20 or 25 times um, and really explored the entire country because it was really one of those only places that I could get to. As I said, as long as I have an internet signal, I can work anywhere I want. And so being able to change location um, is was really something that was great. So that to me is, is one of my hobbies. Um, you know, I do work a lot. Um, but I also make sure that I take time um, for myself. I mean, certainly the last couple of years for many people have been um, uh, very trying from a mental uh, health and wellness perspective. There's a lot of conversations surrounding that in almost every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do, you know, some of the things that I've set out even for this year for myself is uh, mindful meditation on a daily basis. Um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm exercising five times a week, even if I'm on a, a treadmill in the hotel or I'm laying on the floor doing sit-ups, whatever the case may be, um, to make sure that I get some physical exercise. Um, and then I'm, I'm watching the things that I'm intaking, you know, alcohol, uh, the types of foods that's coming in to really kind of like keep um, as much mental clarity as I possibly can and really kind of get back what I had maybe um, five, six years ago, um, you know, pre-COVID timeframes. So, because COVID did have an impact on, you know, on many of us. And so that's, that's neither here nor there, but the mental health and focus is something that I'm doing for myself. Um, I've always been very business centric and people that know me are like, Scott's actually doing something for himself. The answer is, yeah, <laughs> um, I really am. Cause it's, it's, um, 
you know, it, it's time and it's something that's very mindful. Um, they're at top of mind to me as well. And then from a grounding perspective, I have amazing people around me. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, the, you know, the woman in my life or, um, my forum mates and entrepreneurs organization or my closest friends, um, they are, um, remarkable, um, in their giving and sharing and caring with me, um, things that are extremely important to me, um, and their friendship. And they are always there for me. And that means, um, an incredible amount to me. And so that keeps me grounded. So it doesn't let me like shoot off like a, like somebody just let off the end of a, a helium balloon that goes off into the air and, you know, fizzles out. Um, but they really make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm doing the things that I need to be doing. And, you know, when I'm not, that I'm, and I, I have some, you know, that mental clarity and, and time to take care of myself and my mother, of course, who was always concerned about Scotty. That, well, that is, no, that's really good. Um, thanks for that. I think that resonates with a lot of people and, um, yeah, very important. Very important. That's good to hear. Um, and sounds like you've got a great group of friends, great community. Um, I heard a really interesting, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I was thinking just about the power of community and the power of culture. I was listening to a, a, a podcast uh, today, almost done with it, about a guy who's, you know, recovering drug addict, alcoholic. And they, a lot of the theory, I guess, behind addiction goes back to a study of rats and the rats were put in a cage with um, cocaine water and heroin water, regular water alone. And they all became addicted and they went towards the harder drug and eventually most of them overdosed and died. This, this guy, this other psychologist years later put together like a rat village with male and female rats and all these different, like a big pen and he and provided uh, water and food, but also some uh, drug infused liquids. And they said there were rats that tried the drug infused liquids, but not a single one of them got addicted. And if they took an addicted rat that had been living in isolation and put it in the community, it, it got off the drugs because yeah. it had community. And I thought, Support. wow, mm -hmm. what a Without crazy, a and people are of course a lot more complex than rats. Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, community is so incredibly important to keep us grounded. So I really appreciate you adding that. Yep. Well, um, yeah, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? You know, I'll wrap with, um, you know, one of the interesting things you talk about community, but also um, I didn't mention my my two children. Uh, one of them's at Kent State University now. The other one's um, a senior at uh, Rocky River, but the, the one at Kent State is, is studying psychology. And he says, you know, Dad, this is the other day, um, if you ever need to talk, you know, I know you're going to be working on yourself and, you know, you know, doing these, these types of things, but you know, I, I'm in psychology now and I'm, I'm here to help you if you need it. And I was just, it, it was like, this is such a cool, precious moment, you know, dad and adult son, like I'm in, man. I'm like, if I got a, I got something to talk about, I'm going to do it. So shout out to Ryan Maloney. Thanks, man. Way to go, Ryan. There. That, that yep. investment will pay off. Dad can Absolutely. count on you as he gets older to have somebody to lean on. I love it. Absolutely. True, true, well, Scott, true. Um, true pleasure to be you. here, my friend. Yeah, thank you for your time. So, ladies and gentlemen, you have just listened to another hour plus of the Creating Structure podcast. He is Scott Maloney, a visionary founder, leader of K2M Design. I'm John Wheaton, CEO of Wheaton Sprague, host of the Creating Structure podcast. Thanks for listening. 
We will catch you next time. Have a good day. <laughs>